So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to read verses 15 through 20, but we're going to center primarily on verse 18 in what I'm going to be talking about. By the way, if you're interested in some additional study, and I hope you all are, um, I would urge you to buy this book, which is called Why We Love the Church. It's by Kevin DeYoung and Ted Cluck. I think some of you men might be familiar with Ted Cluck because he was here a few weeks ago doing some kind of men's event. Kevin DeYoung, he's just, he's just an exceptional writer, and this is a well-written book that kind of presents God's doctrine of the church in Scripture in a narrative style through a lot of stories and accentuate certain values. And it's just a really good read. So if you're going to buy one book in the series, buy this book until I present the next book next week and then buy that book as well. Okay? Okay, Matthew chapter 16. Title of this morning's message is Why Church? That's the series. Why Church Building? Why Church Building? Verse 15, he, that's Jesus, said to them, that's the disciples, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this, this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for this extraordinary promise that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, we pray this morning, we pray today that you would meet us by giving us greater insight into what this means for your people and what this means for each one of us as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Lewis Drummond's biography about Charles Spurgeon, he tells a story about Spurgeon where shortly after his conversion, Spurgeon became convinced that he needed to join a local church. And so he made an appointment with the pastor of the church where he was attending to talk about membership, but the pastor would not receive him when he arrived. And so he returned on four different successive days, but regardless of what he did, he was unable to gain an interview with the pastor. So undeterred by this insipid pastor, who Spurgeon later referred to as lax and slow, um, Spurgeon wrote him saying that if he would not see him, that Spurgeon would go to the next church meeting and he would publicly propose himself for membership. And in Drummond's understated style, he, he, he makes a comment. He said, this got the pastor's attention, meaning this shook him free of his kind of laxness and slowness. And Spurgeon, 
Spurgeon later reflected upon that whole experience by saying, he, meaning the pastor, he looked upon me as a strange character, but I meant what I said, for I felt that I could not be happy without fellowship with the people of God. I wanted to be wherever they were, and if anybody ridiculed them, I wished to be ridiculed with them. And if people had an ugly name for them, I wanted to be called by that ugly name. For I felt that unless I suffered with Christ in His humiliation, I could not expect to reign with Him in glory. Now, I read that for the first time, and I thought, you know, I'm not sure I understand exactly what's going on here, but what's up with Spurgeon here? Why is he going all OCD on this pastor What's the nature of this urgency? What's the nature of his persistence that he will not give up? Well, you might say, well, he was the prince of preachers. Obviously, membership is going to be important to him. However, this was long before he was a pastor when his only title was that of Christian. And I began to wonder about this story. Is it possible that there was something that Spurgeon saw about the local church. Is there something that Spurgeon saw that we can be blind to? And the importance of that question delivers us back to Matthew chapter 16. The first, by the way, reference to the church in the New Testament. And we have this story between Jesus and Peter. And Peter Peter is having quite the day, as, as Jesus has asked all of his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter spontaneously spouts out that you are the Christ, you are the Son of God, thereby acing that test. Whereupon Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. And so all of a sudden, Peter is on a roll. I mean, Peter is walking around with the other disciples. He busts the knuckles, and, and he's just very excited because he's on a roll. He's convinced he had game on that day, confident that God himself was speaking through Peter because that's what Jesus declared about Peter until, of course, only hours later. And we didn't read this, but then in just a few hours after that, Peter rebukes Jesus because Jesus begins talking to the disciples about his own crucifixion. And Jesus turns around and tells him, get behind me, Satan. So, you know, one hour it's God speaking through him. The other hour it's Satan, Satan speaking through him. Welcome to a day in the life of Peter. You know, at one moment he's, he's speaking for God, the other moment he's speaking for Satan. That's just kind of how he rolled. But don't miss the fundamental point, which is that after Peter makes this historic profession of the divinity of Jesus Christ, Jesus responds by saying, and I tell you, Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, and this is what I want you to pay particular attention to, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, those are profound words. And when Jesus says, I will build my church, he's not just talking about a bucket list that he made for himself, you know, things that he wants to accomplish before he dies that become irrelevant after he dies. He's not just making folks aware of his to-do list. No, he's announcing the answer to the relational catastrophe that happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden. As the man and woman are created, they're put in the garden, sin slithers into the garden, Eve sins, Adam sins, and immediately they are separated from God 
and they are separated from each other. And this was the first and most devastating effect in the Garden of Eden, that sin caused a separation. Sin introduced alienation in all relationships, their relationship with God and their relationship with one another. And so we begin to march through the Old Testament, but there are faints and hints and promises as you continue to go through the Old Testament of a time that would come where God would begin to reverse and roll back the effects of what took place in Eden, where those who were not His people, where those who were alienated from Him and from each other would all of a sudden be reunited and become the people of God. Promises from God that God would solve the problem of our estrangement from Him and from one another. And I just pulled one out from Jeremiah 31, verse 33, that I wanted to read to you this morning. Here's an example of one of those promises in the Old Testament. For this is the covenant... Jeremiah said, that I will make, or God said through Jeremiah, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. In other words, a new covenant is coming, a new arrangement is coming that would restore us to God and then bind us to one another in love. One that God would institute, one that God would install in the lives of His people where those who responded to grace would be called my people. They would be called my people. And when Jesus uses that term in, in, in Matthew chapter 16 and says He will build His church, He's talking about the universal church of all those who call upon the name of the Lord. All believers throughout the world. That's His church. Capital C. The universal church. Now here's the thing. Our unity with every believer in the world, that's a wonderful thing. It's an extraordinary thing. But God was not content to keep us kind of anonymously and mystically connected and related with the global church. It's a wonderful thing to be that, but God wasn't content to leave it just at that. God wanted to give us a real live experience with family. God wanted to give us a real live experience with with growth, with His people, with the grace that comes only through the people of God, where two or three are gathered, Jesus said, I am there. He wanted to give us a live experience with that. Not just theoretical, but live. See, if I become a member of, you know, of the karate dojo next door, then I become part of the club. I'm in the club. But being joined to a large club like that doesn't mystically advance me in karate. Being part of the large club doesn't advance me or connect me relationally with other members of the karate club. No, for that to happen, I've got to begin to attend classes. I've got to begin to train. Because joining the club doesn't connect me to the members of the club. The classes do. Signing up for karate doesn't advance me in karate. The classes do. Being in the universal church is a spectacular perk. It's a wonderful thing to behold. But if I want relationship, if I want growth, if I want transformation, I must join a local expression of the universal church, which is why Jesus began saying, I will build my church. I will build my church declares God's agenda for his people. So that's God's agenda. I will build my church, but as we see the New Testament unfold, we see that the local church becomes God's method then for building what he's going to build among the people of God. Which is why 
when the Spirit of God is poured out. In Acts chapter 2, one of the first fruits of the Spirit being poured out was the formation of God's people into a defined, quantifiable group of the local church. It's why in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit falls, folks repent, and then they are added that day, it says in verse chapter 2, verse 41, 3,000 souls, and then it says, and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to fellowship and to prayer. So we begin to see where, where when Jesus builds his church, the universal church begins to spawn the local church. The universal church begins to produce or create the local church. The club becomes a class. And we begin to encounter each other in the context of the local church. Local bodies of Christ where people are pastored, where friendships happen, where the poor are fed, where Christians are accountable, where the mission of God moves forward through the people of God. There's a reason why R.C. Sproul says of the local church, it's the most important institution on the planet today. Because without the local church, those things don't happen. And they don't happen to the degree that God wants them to happen. People are not pastored. Friendships do not take place and drill down to the level of biblical fellowship. Christians are not accountable. Mission will not go forward. That's why it's the most important institution on the planet. And if that be true, well, then we can understand why Spurgeon was so so aggressive about getting into it. We can understand why Jesus was so passionate to say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let's, let's look a little bit more closely at this. Let's, let's study this a little bit further and talk about why the local church exists. I'm going to give you two simple points, and this is just an introduction if we had time, we could list a whole number of other points, but this is, so this is far from comprehensive. This is more of a primer. But the local church exists as one, a place to build, and two, a place to apply. A place to build and a place to apply. That's what we're talking about. So first, let's talk about a place to build, and I'm looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, all of that, let's just stop. That's all universal church. Members of the household of God, universal church. Citizens with the saints, universal church. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, universal church. In him... The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Universal church. Now verse 22 though, there's a transition made because he begins to address the Ephesians in particular and says, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Oh, I, I, just, I wish we had time to talk about this whole chapter because this is, a, this is a fascinating chapter that really celebrates and enunciates the potency of the gospel for real life. This idea that the gospel is so revolutionary that it breaks down the barriers of the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. It works to reunite that which has been fragmented by sin. It begins to restore Eden 
in the lives of believers, although we never quite get there short of heaven, but it unites that which is fragmented by sin. And it then delivers us to this verse 19, and much of this, again, is about the universal church. So we're fellow citizens, and we're members of Christ, God's household, and and the whole structure is growing up, and we're a holy temple. All of that being the universal church. But then it delivers us right into verse 22. In him, in other words, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit of God. So this is where God is making this promise. He is emphatically making a statement that he's, he, God joins us universally that he might build us locally. And then in him, we are built to, being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are joined together universally that he might build us locally. And then building us together locally is evidence that we are in him. So God joins us together universally that we might be joined or he might build us locally. And being built together locally is evidence that we are in him. So I want to I just slow down a little bit now and, and talk about some of the ways that we see in the New Testament Christians being built together. What, what are some of the specific ways, what are the patterns that begin to emerge within the New Testament where we see Christians being built together? And I've got two different sub-points under this place to build. Two different sub-points. One is that building together means membership. Building together means membership, and building together means participation. Building together means membership. Membership is where the universal church organizes locally under certain leaders to achieve the biblical goals of care and prayer and worship and service and accountability and mission. The universal church organizes locally under certain leaders to achieve the biblical goals of care and prayer and worship and service and accountability and mission. And I'm not just making that up. That was the pattern from the outset. That was what happened after the Spirit of God was poured on the book of Acts. And I'm so excited about the study we're going to be doing in the fall on the book of Acts because we're going to drop into this a lot more thoroughly and see the activity of the Spirit and all that it produced in the people of God. But one of the things that we begin to see as we study Acts is that God is working not just in the universal church in a disconnected way, not just keeping people separated and mystically united, but beginning to form them into definable, quantifiable groups. So, you know, in Acts chapter 6, for instance, we have, we have the disciples are feeding the widows in Jerusalem because there is a defined local church that's feeding the widows. The universal church isn't doing that. It's the local church that's doing that. In Acts chapter 20, the pastors are told, pay careful attention to your flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So the Holy Spirit assigns certain pastors to certain people, certain people to certain pastors. So there's supposed to be a defined, quantifiable care that people can experience. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says the final step of discipline is tell it to the church. In other words, a specific group of people where there's real accountability that exists one for another so that if someone is straying, that there are people that love them enough to go after them and to pull them back in. 
So when people move towards membership, they participate in this Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. In Him, you're being built together into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. They're participating in God building His church. In other words, when, when folks in here at Four Oaks attend the Engage class, and then after the Engage, which is our new members class, and then after the engaged class decide to become members, they're entering into that work of Jesus Christ. They're being built together. In fact, let me just make an appeal this morning. If, if you are a Christian and you are not meaningfully involved through membership in the body of Christ in some local church, there is some church out there that needs your service that desires your involvement, and that deserves your commitment. I hope it's this church, but if it's not this church, let us help you find the church, because what's most important to us is not that everybody join Four Oaks. Hope you do, but that's not what's most important to us. It's that the people of God find meaningfully, meaningful connections within the church of God. You know, as a pastor, it can be so disconcerting to see how often Christians can choose jobs and homes and universities without ever thinking about what local church they're going to be involved in. As if that's just a peripheral or an insignificant issue. As if being under pastoral care or being able to fellowship with the people of God is something that is relatively meaningless for them. I brought a quote by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who once said, it is our failure as Christian people to understand what our church membership means, the dignity, the privilege, the responsibility that causes most of our problems. So building together means membership in the local church. But building together also, and this is the second sub-point, means participation. It means Participation. Again, Acts chapter 2. Remember the, the first sighting of the local church in Acts chapter 2 is their devotion. One to another, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to fellowship, devoted to prayer, devoted to the sacraments. They want to be together. And there's a sense where you know they're Christians by their love, but their love has a context. It's one with another. Another passage, Hebrews chapter 10, I think. They're going to flash this behind me. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Listen to this. Not neglecting to meet together. Now listen. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, one of the clearest ways to know whether we are being built together is that we are devoted, just like they were in the New Testament. We're devoted to the apostles' teaching and breaking bread, fellowship, and prayer. So there's this quality of devotion. But we also realize that, that, yeah, as believers, we need to be meeting together. We need to be enjoying the Word of God being taught. We need to enjoy the experience of fellowship, and each one of us needs to have that in some way. And we're not drifting from that because we're getting older in Christ. We're not drifting from that as is the habit of some, according to that passage, but we are connecting and we are encouraging. And in fact, it says, and all the more. In other words, in increasing measure as the day of the Lord draws near. The older we get, the more committed to these kind of things we need to be. The more we draw closer to the Lord coming, the more we need it. 
The more we need one another, the more we need the, the local church. And yet I find that there are these two, I'm going to call them viruses, growing viruses that, that I detect within evangelicalism that seem to be attacking the participation of the people of God in the local church. And there are two different ones, and they're not the same in their level of danger. The first one, I think, is by far the most dangerous one, and that is this virus that is causing people to reject the local church. There's a growing number of people that are there. A growing number of people that are, that are bidding farewell to the local church and finding God in coffee houses or, or spiritual retreats or online chats or in house groups or, or in nature or, or, or in just the cathedral of individual expression. You may have heard Paul talk about Donald Miller, who's a popular author. He wrote Blue Like Jazz. He's written a number of other books as well. He's a very gifted author, very good with words. But he recently announced that he no longer attends a local church. And he, he said it this way, quote, he said, How do I find intimacy with God if not through a traditional church model? I connect with God by working. I literally feel an intimacy with God when I build my company. I also believe the church is all around us, not to be confined by a specific tribe. Listen, I'm really grateful to God that he encounters God by building his company. Would to God that more men and women encountered God and felt the pleasure of God as they built their companies. I'm not in any way taking issue with that. I'm just taking issue with the fact that that seems to be replacing the local church for him because I don't think that's supposed to be the effect in the life of the believer. It's, it's almost personified in this quote that I once read from Bono who said, Christians are hard to tolerate. I don't know how Jesus does it. I don't know how Jesus does it. And, and my goal in bringing up those two examples, Donald Miller and Bono, is, is not to, to mock a perspective that I disagree with. No, it's, it's, to, it's to elevate our level of discernment so that we're aware that this virus is at work that there is this growing virus within the church that is leading people to reject the church of God. And there's a second one as well, and I would consider this a lesser strain, but it's, it's particularly present among those who have been around the longest. Those who have labored, those who have committed, those who have paid the price, those that have bled the blood and shed the tears. And that is to minimize or marginalize the role of the local church. To neglect, to use the Hebrews passage, to neglect the meeting of the people. You know, they've lost the zeal or the fervor that they once had to build the church. Or, or no longer see the value of remaining and maintaining meaningful involvement in the local church because they've been burned out, because they've been affected or disillusioned or disappointed, all of which is an understandable response that we must, where we must go back to the words of Jesus and not simply to our feelings, but back to the word of Jesus to see what he is doing in the earth today, to align ourselves with what Jesus is doing in the earth today. 
And, and our greatest challenge is the fact that it can lead us towards a kind of passivity. Unlike, unlike believers in China or believers in North Korea, our, our challenge is not persecution. Our challenge is ambivalence. It just doesn't mean what it once did. But John Piper once said, there's a great gulf between the Christianity that wrestles with whether to worship at the cost of imprisonment and death and the Christianity that wrestles with whether the kids should play soccer on Sunday morning. See, I will build my church. That's not just pithy prose where Jesus is trying to turn a phrase that can end up on the bumper. Jesus is announcing his unending commitment to his people, his unalterable devotion to a people, and keep this in mind, to a people that rejected him to a people that sinned against them. In the event that we ever feel justified because God's people have disappointed us. And, and who among us can't relate to that? You know, being disappointed by the people of God. Who among, you know, sometimes for Christians, the greatest pain can come in their life at the hands of other Christians. But we've got to remember that we follow a Savior who... who who made that statement that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, he made, he, and remember that that statement came from a guy that was denied and abandoned by the people that he died for. That was denied and abandoned by the church. But that didn't erase his devotion to the church. That didn't erase his heart for the church. And so if we find ourselves today where, where Bono's words, while we wouldn't put it in those words, but somehow they describe some of the way we feel or the state of our heart. It may be that we've been infected by the virus. And we didn't come to terms perhaps initially that the local church, is, it's, it's hard to tolerate because it's filled with sinners. And, and now that you're here, it's even worse. And now that I'm here, it's even worse. I was talking with somebody recently who said, hey, I come from a church where the church leaders have disappointed me. I said, oh, come to Four Oaks. We'll disappoint you too. I said, and we'll sin, and I'll sin, and you'll see my weaknesses. But I hope you'll find that we'll be honest about it. I hope you'll find that we'll just be straight up about it. See, one of my gifts is to disabuse people the notion that the church is heaven. Because sometimes we think that. We get saved. And, and we experience the love of God through the people of God, and we begin to think that it's heaven. And so God brings me along, and I disabuse people of that through my personality. A place to build. A place to build. God wants you to build because he's building, and he wants that to continue throughout your life. Which leads me to my second point, and this is the only other point I'm making, and that is the local church is also a place to apply. It's a place to apply. Now, if that sounds familiar to the guys here that were at the retreat, I'm covering some of the, some of the same material. So some of this will be, some of this, not all of this, but some of this will be repetition for you. But here, here, here's the good news. And oh, I, how I want you to see this in the way God sees this. God is so committed. This is God's heart for you. God is so committed to you finishing well that he has created a place to help you make it. He has created a place to help you apply. 
It is called the local church. The local church is a place where words like compassion and humility and servanthood are not just talked about. They're not just studied. They're not just examined from afar, but they are clothed in flesh and embodied among the people of God. Because words like humility and servanthood are just empty phrases until they're really applied. They're just empty phrases. They mean nothing. They're just concepts until they're applied. I've got a confession for you. In fact, this is particularly important for those of you here that are guests so that you can get to know me. I'm a really, really humble guy. I'm an incredible servant as well. I'm humble and an incredible servant until other people come along. When I'm by myself, oh, am I humble. And you wouldn't believe how effectively I serve myself each and every day. And I can humble myself before myself all the time. And I counsel myself, and I'm very humble in the way that I receive counsel for myself. But it's when other people come along that you can see my pride. And I only get other people when I commit myself to other people in a relationship that says to them, listen, I'm not going to bail out when I see your sin, and you shouldn't bail out when you see my sin. Let's agree together within the context of the church that we don't bail out because of each other's sin. See, God knows that there is this deception that comes from hearing alone. James says, be doers of the word and not merely hearers, lest you be deceived. See, we're we're deceived when we think we are what we know rather than we are what we do. Did you get that? We become deceived when we think we are what we know rather than we are what we do. God says, you are what you do. We say, no, no, I I think I am what I know. I think I am what I talk about. I think I am what I sing about. I think I am how I portray myself in front of other people. God says, no, no, you don't get it. You are what you do. Because if you are what you know, then you become deceived. Then you begin to think you are something you're not. I measure by what you do. We say, Lord, I, heard, I just heard this great message on humility. I love humility. I can't believe humility is such a wonderful thing. God says, great, I'm sending you a friend to correct you. Let's see how humble you are. Let's see how well you apply it. Here's what we need to hear. God loves us too much to allow us to be hearers only. God loves us too much to allow us to live in deception with respect to ourselves. So he has created the local church. A place where we learn to do. A place where we learn to apply. How many of you know that there is a a vast difference in the guy who is a fan of FSU football and a guy who actually played FSU football? I mean, you know as well as I do, there's a mania. I I actually understand the mania. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh where everybody is a Steelers fan. Your pets were Steelers fans in Pittsburgh. If you didn't like the Steelers, you had no business being in Pittsburgh. You should get out of Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh was all about the Steelers. It would be 10 degrees below zero, and that stadium would be filled on Sunday afternoon. We weren't bright. We were devoted because we were Steelers fans. And so for me, being a Steelers fan meant each and every Sunday afternoon, I would mount the sofa, snacks in hand, to begin to experience the game. And this is typically how that went down. Early in the game, As I was watching the game, there was a kind of symbiotic meld that would take place between the players and myself where I vicariously began to participate in the gridiron struggle for yardage. 
where eventually you come to a place, and you fans know what I'm talking about, you come for a, to a place where, where their touchdowns become your triumphs. You feel like you carried the ball over the touchdown line, or their fumbles became failures that you experienced in your life because you were also on the field, at least you thought so in your mind, but I wasn't playing. My experience with the Steelers was basically sitting in a recliner. And have you noticed that athletes and fans, they share some remarkable similarities. For instance, they both breathe, they're both human, they both breathe, and that's about it. Because in reality, fans and players are remarkably different. Fans exist in comfort as they analyze the game, as they talk about the game as they fellowship around the game, as they talk about the playbook. But they never have to apply the playbook. They only talk about the playbook. Their vantage point is the flat-screen TV with dusting of potato chips across their game jersey. But the player, by contrast, oh, he, he experiences an entirely different day. Because Sunday afternoons for him is a world of decision. It's a world of exertion. It's a world of action. It's a world of application. It's a world of doing. Where his vantage point is the field of activity, where, where he has to apply what he knows. Can't simply hear, can't simply talk about. He must apply what he knows. See, fans live vicariously. Players live by application. Fans live vicariously. Players live experientially. Oh, yeah, fans make great, great football fun. They make football profitable. But if you're going to be a fan of Jesus, you're going to fail. And so, because he loves us so much, he has created a way for us to finish well. He has created a place to help us to make it. He has created a place to help us to apply what we believe. It's called the local church. By the way, it's also called marriage and family if you're here and you're married. These are application labs for the Christian life. And one of the ways to understand the essence of the local church is that it positions us to do, not merely to hear, but to do. It is a context for application. And so because God loves us, he will front load the local church experience with people who will help us grow. And it's very ironic and sometimes comical we say, Lord, I thought the church was about meeting my needs. God says it is. I just define need a little differently than you do. You say, God, I need sympathy. God says, I don't think you need sympathy. I think you sympathize with yourself way too much. I think you need to learn how to love because that's what the accent is on in the New Testament. It's on love. God says, no, no, I think you need to learn humility. And so I'm going to teach you humility. I'm going to introduce you to a man named Earl. Now, Earl is just a, you know, he's a fictitious figure. If you're here named Earl, I'm not talking to you. God's not talking to you this morning. Earl's just, Earl's just this composite sketch of everything you don't like in other people. The, the things that drive you nuts in other people. That, that's Earl. That's Earl. He's the composite sketch of that person. And so God says, I've placed Earl in your fellowship to help you grow. He's part of my project in your soul. He's part of my labor. He's, he's my plant. I've planted him in your life. You know how you love stuff? Well, Earl's going to borrow your stuff. He's going to mess with your stuff. He's not going to return your stuff on time. And when he does return it, it's going to be a problem. And he's going to be clueless because Earl doesn't even think about that kind of stuff. 
You know how you love to talk? Well, Earl's going to talk more than you. Earl's going to talk over you. Earl's going to occupy time and attention that you feel like you don't have. And by dealing with him, you're going to learn what love really is. You know how you love respect? Earl's going to dish you. But you know what? He doesn't even know because he's not even aware of those kind of categories. He lives in the moment. He speaks what immediately comes into his mind. And he's not even aware that he's affecting you. And I've been faithful to place Earl's in your life, but you don't see him as my activity. See, we're at home praying. We're saying, Lord, help me to grow in humility. Help me to grow in love. The doorbell rings. We think, who's that? God says, it's Earl. He's here to answer your prayer. You're going to learn how to love. You're going to learn how to be humble. He is my gift to you to help you to be a doer of the word. He's my gift to you to reveal to you what you love more than me. God has this commitment to his own glory that he works with each and every week of our life. And we have a way of displacing God in our life and erecting other things that we begin to worship. But God says, first commandment, I'll have no other gods before me. I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous for your affection. So he's always working to displace those things that we might put in place of him because we all have idols. Well, what God does is he connects us with people that hooks those idols. Your spouse will hook your idols. Earl will hook your idols. Yeah, God, God sends Earl to hook your idols. God sends Earl with a lasso to lasso your idol and ride it around the church like a bucking bronco. You say, Lord, what's the point of all that? God says, I'm not looking for your comfort. I want your growth. I'm not looking for your comfort. I want my glory. I'm not looking for you to just be comfortable in the relationship because that's not ultimately my goal. I'm looking to help you finish the race. I'm looking to teach you to be a doer of the word. Just remember, as you're sitting there thinking about somebody else, somebody else sitting there thinking of you, Earl. Listen, haven't you wondered why you married someone who drives you crazy? Or you room with someone that drives you nuts? Have you ever wondered why God will be faithful to give you teenagers? They just want to color outside the lines. They refuse to stay within the lines. Sure, the parent-pleasing teen will teach you to thank God. But that angry teen, the one that slams the door and screams and runs up the steps and goes in the room and he or she throws themselves on the bed, that teen will teach you the gospel. Because there's no way to move forward unless you know the gospel. There's no way forward unless you can apply the gospel and embody the gospel, and be the gospel for them. See, we get so embedded in our problems, we don't see the big picture. And God says, I love you too much to just let you be a fan. We say, God, I'm over 50, and and I've been applying this for three decades. God says, yeah, that's why you're so vulnerable. That's why I'm agitating your life right now, because you're at risk of being a hearer and not a doer. And so I'm going to be faithful to supply you Earl in every season, the exact person you need at the exact moment to press on the exact idol that will secure your endurance in me. But it's going to come because you have devoted yourself to a people. It's going to come because you have devoted yourself to a local church and you are not thinking of creative reasons in every season to avoid committing or to avoid attending. And so I ask you, Do do you have 
a local church that you call home? Do you, are there pastors that you can name that feel responsible before God for your soul to care for you? As I said earlier, there, there is some local church out there that, that needs your help, that deserves your commitment, and I hope it's here, but if it's not here, let us help you find out where it is because it's too important to drift. It's too important to be passive towards. And if this is not it, get there. Go there, wherever it is. And if you're wondering if this may be it, I want to encourage you to, to sign up for the next Engage class, which is coming up in a, a number of weeks. I think it's on May 4th. There's an Engage class, which is our new members class. It's one night, and you can get involved. But, but here's my appeal. Here's my appeal. Please don't ignore the primary venue that God has created to help us run strong and to help us finish the race. Listen, if Charles Spurgeon needed it, we need it. If Peter needed it, we need it. I need it. You need it.